The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. And Father, um, we do, we come to you in prayer. So much as those songs express, just desiring to be in your presence, desiring to love you more, um, to be refined by you more, God, for we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and you are faithful to complete that work that you began in each and every one of your born-again children, born into the family of God. And, and so I pray that we would be yielding in our hearts this morning, that we would be working with you, um, just soft and tender for you to touch and to penetrate and to do a work of grace, for we do not deserve anything from you. Well, if we do deserve anything, it is uh, judgment for our sin, for our guilt. Um, but in Christ, God, abundantly, your, the grace abounds. And so we, we seek your favor. We, we, we ask for you, God, who is a generous God, that you would uh, just bestow a blessing upon your people this morning. And Father, as in, as in faith, as I step forward, um, trusting you to, to, to open your word and to preach from it, um, I ask, dear, dear God, that you would fill me with your spirit, that, that every word, everything that would come to mind to impart um, would indeed be so, that we would share together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would share in this work of grace um, as you strengthen, as you build up, as you refine your people for your glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, I'm going to get myself situated here, but if you want to pick up your Bibles and get you started there as far as where to turn, we have been going through Genesis, but we're going to be in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. So, uh, this, this morning is indeed going to be a bit different from the norm as already alluded to in the announcements, uh, including the passage I'm preaching from, as you guys just turned there. We are, we're going to take a pause on Genesis for today and pick up there again next Sunday when Ray, who was originally planned to preach this morning from Genesis, um, right now still at home, trapped because of the snow, as I shared this morning, when he's delivered from that snow cement barricade um, held prisoner by, he'll, he'll be here and, and pick up where we left off in Genesis. So with that, you know, not having the, uh, the typical allotted time for preparation uh, for this morning, I was led to try a different approach for today's sermon. I was already looking I was already looking at 1 Kings chapter 8 as a sampling of scripture to direct how our time in prayer would be influenced by this morning. So typically we have that time of prayer and, and that's where I was being drawn um, to, to, to pray from. So, so with the sermon, with our message this morning, I'm, gonna, I'm going to invite you all to camp around this text with me for a time. 
camp around it with me, to, to give special attention to it prior to concluding in a time of prayer together. The passage of scripture in 1 Kings chapter 8 is a larger one that consists of King Solomon's blessing to the Lord, his blessing upon the people, and his prayer of dedication to the Lord, and finally his benediction. And this is all after the completion of the building of the temple, okay? It is verses 12 through 61 in chapter 8 of 1 Kings. 12 through 61. So yeah, like another big portion of scripture, right? Uh, but, but again, our approach this morning is not to break it down bit by bit, but rather draw out some key markers that represent the meat and potatoes of one who is solely dedicated to the Lord, which is the, the central message to sink our teeth into this morning, a life solely dedicated to the Lord. What does it mean to have such a life? Like, what does that look like? The answer to these questions is what I aim for us to arrive at as we then move into a time of prayer together. So let's, let's first set the stage to who Solomon is and where we are at in this place and time of 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon is whose son? Yes, you can speak. David. Yes, David's son. King David's son. So King David has passed. Like he's, he's, he's dead at this point in, in chapter 8. He's passed and Solomon, his son, takes his place as king over Israel. Now, is there something unique about Solomon? Let me ask it this way. Aside from Jesus, who would likely be second in line to be the wisest man who ever lived? Solomon, yeah. Those who are familiar with their Bibles would quickly answer Solomon. I mean, the book of wisdom, Proverbs, written by Solomon, except maybe a small portion. So, yeah, we, the, the, the account of this, they recall the account that Solomon was visited in the night by the Lord, right? He's recently crowned king of Israel after the passing of his father, David. So newly reigning King David or King Solomon is visited by God in a dream by night and asked a very special question. In fact, you know, let's, just, let's just turn there. It's not too far from where we're at. It's worth going to. It's, it's chapter three in 1 Kings, right? Chapter three in 1 Kings, starting in verse three. Let's go ahead and read the, a portion of this. Verse three. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. And I just want to pause there for a moment. Like, that recorded right there is significant in itself, right? The beginning. Solomon loved the Lord. That reveals much about his heart. And then secondly, he walked in the statutes of his father, David. And we're going to see more of this as we go through the text, that Solomon had high respect and honor for his dad. The example his dad gave. You'll see this over and over again. It's just, it's beautiful. I mean, he even refers to David, King David, as your servant. When he's talking to God, your servant, King David, my father. And this carries through when he becomes king. I am your servant. So 
It's just beautiful. And so for parents and children alike, that relationship, that connection there of the example we are as parents and then kids, recognizing, appreciating the godly example in your father and your mother, even in your grandparent that they bring to your life. King Solomon, who is, we already established, the wisest man who ever lived, aside from Jesus, recognized that. And it's a beautiful thing. So I want to I capture that. So let's continue. Only he, only he, Solomon, sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. You know, the temple has yet to been built at this point. And the king, King Solomon, went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. So apparently there's multiple. This was like the one, right? Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So this, the great high place, Solomon offered a lot of sacrifices at Gibeon. And at Gibeon, verse 5, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. So here it is. And God said, ask what I shall give you. What a question. I don't think that's ever been asked by anybody else in the Bible. Like God comes to this man, King Solomon, who loved the Lord, walked in the statutes of his father David, says, ask. Like whatever it is is what that implies. Whatever it is, ask me and I will grant it. I mean, what a setup. So how does King Solomon, how does he respond? This is like a lot of pressure here in a sense. Like, what do I ask? Let's continue. Verse six, and Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. So let's just pause here for a moment. Once again, Solomon in responding is not even giving attention to himself yet. First, it's to God, you God. You have been faithful. You have shown steadfast love to my father. I've witnessed this. I've beheld it. My father who has been faithful to you, been, been uh, uh, righteous, what is it? In righteous, walked before you, walked before God in obedience and faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart. Like he saw the, the sincerity of his father's heart toward God. And so in answering this question, first he just acknowledges, gives glory to God, like, God, you have been faithful. You have been steadfast in your love towards my father. What, what a fitting response, so reflective of where we're going to go here. Let's continue. He's still speaking to God, and you have kept for him, for King David, this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son. Now he's speaking to himself in third person. I'm like, he's the son, a son to sit on his throne this day. Verse seven, and now, O Lord, my God. So now he's getting to like, okay, my God, I'm ready to answer your question. My God, you have made your servant king, speaking of himself, in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child. Whoa. Like, I'm guessing at this point, he, his, his voice has changed, right? Like, he is a grown man. But look at the reflection of that and, and his response to God. But I am but a little child. And he even continues. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Like, I need help. I know very little. Just this whole intro. I am like a child. Like, that childlike faith is just present in those words expressed there. It's beautiful. I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or go out or come in. Verse 8, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. 
too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. I want to pause there again. Like that is magnificent to me. Here he is king. And he recognizes, I am in the midst of your people. Like, I am one of the sheep. I am one of your people. And so as a, as a pastor, I read that, I'm like, oh, that is, that is glorious. That is what a heart of an of a overseer, of a, key, of a ruler is, one who's in that role, first and foremost, recognizes he is one of the people. He is a sheep. So as a pastor, that's my prayer, that, that my heart would always be, I am among the people, that I am one of the sheep, first and foremost. And I am just fulfilling a calling, a role as a pastor, as an elder. Nothing more than that. I'm just being obedient to what God has equipped me for by his grace. Same as each and every one of us and the roles and the giftings that he has granted. So I, I see that reflected there and I just, I love it. Like I'm in the midst of your people. I'm not towering above them. Like in that sense, he's king, yes, but I'm in the midst of your people, a great people. Let's continue. Verse nine. So recognizing all this, he's a little child in a sense. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. What did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom, to rule well, to f- fulfill his duty as king well. God is so pleased with what he asked for that he not only gives him, as it says here a few verses later in that chapter 3, a wise and discerning mind so that none like him has ever been before, like there is no one who's ever been like you before in the wisdom that I'm going to give you, nor... Will anyone rise after you with that wisdom? And if you read through the first Kings, like people travel from all over the world to see Solomon, to behold this wisdom that God gave him. I mean, that's the wisdom God endowed to him. Such a wisdom to see this renowned wisdom. God, but he doesn't stop there. God also grants him what he did not ask for both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with Solomon all his days. So this, this is who Solomon is, right? This is who he is. And and as you can already see from early on, his life represents well a life solely dedicated to the Lord. Sadly, though, this does not always remain so. For in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, we, we read this. Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, little g, after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So he had a strong beginning but not so in the end. Not so in the end. However, however, where we are at this moment and this morning in chapter 8, and this moment in time in Solomon's life, it still finds him representing very well, okay? He's not old yet. This is still in the time representing very well a life that is solely dedicated to the Lord. He has completed the building of the temple, the house of the Lord. It took seven years, right? 
completed. And and now he's brought in all the things that David, his father, had dedicated to the building of the temple. The silver, the gold, the vessels. You know, he brings all this in and stores them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord or the treasuries of the temple. He brings all this in. And the last thing to be brought in is... Eric mouthed it to me. The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the two tablets of stone God wrote upon with his finger, uh, the covenant when he was on the Mount Sinai with Moses. So what happened when the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its, its place. Remember, the, where it resided was the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the right out of the, What happened took place? Let's, let's go ahead and read that. Glance up. Go back to, to chapter 8. Go back to chapter 8. Glance up. I know we're in 12 through 61, but glance up to 10 and 11, and we'll see what happens there. It says, and when the priests came out of the holy place, they've, they've put the Ark in its resting place, under the cherubim. When they came out of the place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. The presence of God, right? The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For, this is what the cloud is, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Like the presence of God comes in and in in the form in the, in, 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 a, in a cloud, but it wasn't just like a cloud we see in the sky. It was God's presence and the glory of it was such a weight that the priests cannot stand. We've seen this before, right? Think in Exodus and when they're out in the, when it was a tent, when the temple was a, a tent they built up in the, uh, in, um, in the wilderness. That's what took place there. But the same thing here now in the completed temple. So this, this is the moment we find ourselves in in the passage, which moves directly into King Solomon blessing the Lord then blessing the people, then lifting up a prayer of dedication to the Lord, and then lastly, a closing benediction. Okay, we are here. <laughs> we are here ready to read through it together with, with special attention given to key markers. Key markers that represent well the meat and potatoes of one who is solely dedicated to the Lord. One last thing. One last thing before we get underway. I'm going to give them to you, okay? I'm going to give them to you in advance. And I separated them into to four categories to, to just place out there in the open, you know, available if you want to, to write down, if you'd like, and, and therefore readily present to identify as we read this beautiful prayer together, this beautiful passage. The four key markers of what we will see that represents the meat and potatoes of one who is solely dedicated to the Lord are, number one, the focus of the heart. And we, we've already seen some of that happening right there, right? There's going to be so much more of it. The focus of the heart of one who is solely dedicated to the Lord. Number two, humility. We're going to see that just expressed, just saturating all the way through. We've already seen it. Your servant David, like there's this humbleness of one who is solely dedicated to the Lord that is just part of their makeup. Humility. Number three, the presence of God. You know, the cloud came in, right? That's the presence of God amongst his people. We're going to see more of that as we move through. And, and that is key for one who is solely dedicated to the Lord. They want nothing more than to be in the constant presence of God wherever they're at. And number four, belonging to God. Like, my people Israel, the God of Israel, my, oh Lord, my God, as King Solomon said. Like, 
There is a sense that you, not just more than a sense, just, just a reality delight that you are a child of God. That is a great comfort. That there, your identity is in Christ. It is belonging to him, purchased by his blood. So that is something you're going to see carry through in this prayer. So we have focus of the heart, humility, presence of God, and belonging to God. All right. Let's read through this together, and we'll pause along the way to rightly give attention to these markers of one who is solely dedicated to the Lord. Starting in verse 12, and for this first part, when he's blessed, we're going to see so much of the presence of God, and also that they are God's people. And it's expressed in promises. Like, I don't make promises like that. When I make, I won't use that example, but promises, promises to his people that he fulfills. And that is a, a huge identifying marker of that you are God's child. Like we, we cling to God's promises. Those who don't know God don't even know God's, what those promises are, right? So we're going to see that here. Verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around, so that was blessing the Lord, but then he turns around and faces the people and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. There's that, our God, the God of us, your people, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, which is just expressing the intimacy that God has with his people, Right? Like, it wasn't so much of his, like, I'm speaking to you now. You see my mouth move. But what's expressed there is that intimacy of God's people. That he spoke with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people, yeah, there it is, Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, God's presence, God's presence there among his people. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. My people again, right? Now, it was in the heart. We're going to get more of this, but already seeing glimpses of it. It was in the heart of David, my father. God knows it was in the heart. Solomon saw his dad's heart. It was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, God's people. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Three times he mentions that. He's looking at the heart, and that's good that was there. Verse 19, nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. That would be Solomon, which he's just completed. Verse 20, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. The tabernacle is completed, Right? His son has done it for, for I have risen. Solomon says, I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, our God. We are his people, his presence here among us. And therefore, I have provided a place for the ark in which, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt belonging to God, his people, promise fulfilled. So now, that's the blessing. And now he's going to do a shift here. In verse 22, he's going to pray. He's going to pray to the Lord, specifically um, this dedication before the Lord of, of this moment in time. 
let's go ahead and read it. So then Solomon, he stood before the altar. Remember, the altar is outside. That's where they put the sacrifices, right? So just picture this, this moment here. He stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. So all assembly, all God's people are gathered together in this moment, in the dedication. And he stands before the altar. And it says here, uh, spread out his hands toward heaven. So this is how he's like, small representation of a number, right? But essentially, let's say this was the altar and he's standing there and he is, he's praying. I, I, perhaps eyes closed, I don't know, but he's praying, hands lifted before the people as one people, as king. So that's what the picture is there. And he says this, he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. There it is again, right? All your heart. And you're going to see in this the heart and humility represented in the opening of this prayer. You have kept with your servant, David, my father, with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant, David, my father, keep for your servant, David, my father, what you have promised him saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. And let's just pause there briefly, like pay close attention, right? I mean, that Christian, like pay close attention to your life, to the examples you have of uh, of a godly life to your own life. The, the things you say, what, what, what thoughts come in. I know you, we can't sometimes even control them, but we can recognize them. And like, I don't want those there. We can renounce them. But just how your day is spent, how you order your way, even as it says in the Psalms, you know, God is near to the one, or uh, I want to try to quote it, but to order your way rightly. Like you give, you give thought to that. You pay close attention to how am I living like how, what am, I, what am I doing with the time that I'm given each and every day? And that's what he says here, like paying close attention. Like this is walking before the Lord, that you're paying attention to these things. Close attention to their way, to your way. Not someone else's so much, but your way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. And this is so cool. Verse 27 but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Exclamation point. I mean, like, so King David is like recognizing the, the, the reality of like, are you kidding me? Like this little house, this temple, this is not going to contain God. Yes, there's a cloud there. The priest can't stand because of the presence of the glory of God. But are you serious? Like heavens can't contain you. Okay, so there's this right recognition of the grandeur, the glory, the magnificent, the greatness of God. And he is saying that plainly in this prayer. And what follows this now? As he built this house, God's presence is there. He is pleading, P-L-E-A, pleading, like ple pleading, like begging in a sense. In this prayer, and the heart behind that is how we ought to pray, pleading that God who is, dwells in the heavens, that can't contain him, that when they pray towards this, this place where his presence, where his name is there, where the glory of God dwells among his people, when they pray there, that he would hear them, that they would give attention, that he would have regard for them, right? Like that's, 
That's what, this is what you're going to see here as we read through it. That as people pray to this place where your name dwells, the place that I've built, you cannot be contained in the heavens. Please hear us. Like the humility, the, the reverence there is just magnificent. It's powerful. So let's read. Verse 28. Yet, like, <laughs> that's just right. Like, I recognize this. I acknowledge this. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant. That would be Solomon. And to his plea. His beg, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. Like, that's just God's giving attention towards the presence of his people, towards this house, a place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and watch this and of your people Israel not just me not just King Solomon not just not just me God but your people we belong to you listen to their prayers as well to your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place heaven that can't contain you but you're more there than this anyway now we'll go there in heaven, uh, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Which is kind of like, where did that come from? Isn't that, when I read that, I'm like, forgive? I mean, there's a reason it comes there, but it, it caught me off guard a little bit. Like, forgive? Well, because we sin, right? We sin. People, we sin. We're sinners. And so what follows here in this transition is addressing that. Because when we pray and giving thanks and worshiping and adoring God, we want to be in his presence. Well, the problem is we sin. And sin puts a, a separation between us and God. That's got to be dealt with. So until there's forgiveness, we're not going to have intimate communion with God. And when you hear, forgive. Because we want to be with you. We want to be close to you. And so here's a shift in the prayer. And the beginning of it is super cool. Well, no, no, no. Reverse that. Scratch that. Not super cool, but fascinating, I guess, maybe. Maybe the word will come to me. But okay, so he's wise at this point, right? God has granted him wisdom that is renowned. No one before him, no one after him. And he is to govern his people, to rule God's great people. And in his wisdom, he recognizes there's, I'm not going to be able to do so perfectly in every single case. That's the first section here in this prayer. Let's read it first, and then I'll explain. Verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So what we have here is there is a conflict that's taking place because of sin. And we have two parties who are saying, I'm, who are saying two different things. And it, it, Solomon is wise, but he doesn't know the heart of man ultimately, Right? And even ourselves, we can be deceived. I mean, what, is, what does the Bible say about the heart, about man's heart? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it, is what the Bible says in Lamentations. Like, who can know it? God knows it. And, what, and, 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 and Solomon knows this. And in his wisdom recognizes, not commonly, 
but there may be cases, times where I, I just don't know God. I have, I have these parties. Maybe it's just two individuals. Maybe it's multiple, but whatever. They, they come before God and they're saying, they're making this promise, I'm innocent. And this other person's like, I've been hurt. Like, I've been sinned against. And, and Solomon can't judge. He, he, he doesn't know the heart. It's just not known. And so his prayer here is, God, you know the heart of man. You are the judge, ultimately, that you will judge perfectly between matters. I even read, uh, I think we even saw it in, in, uh, in Genesis, was it between Jacob and Laban, I th- where he said, I may, may God be judged between me and you at, at some point? He's, you know, he says it like, just we're at an impasse. May God be a judge between me and you. Like, I don't know. We, we can't go forward. And I believe that's what we see here, where God condemns the guilty by bringing his conduct on his. Solomon doesn't condemn him. <laughs> God condemns the servants, both of them, right? There's God judges the servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating, <clears throat> vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. And we can rest in that, really. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a painful situation, but you can, you can rest in that. You know, God sees and knows our heart perfectly. There's nothing hidden from him. Even when we are blind to it, he knows it. And he is just, and he is good, and he will make things right. And there's also in this. So let's say, like, it's it, just using myself as, as an example. Like, I'm the one where it comes upon my own head. Like, ouch. Like, boom, this has happened. But there's a grace there, right? Because if I'm one of God's kids, it's a discipline. It's a correction. It's like a spanking taking place. Like there is a, there's a rest there that if it's revealed to me by the grace of God that, oh, it was me, I was deceived. It was my heart and you're broken over it. There is a, there is a gateway to a healing in that moment by the discipline of your father who loves you. And, 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 and that segues well into the next several verses because it has to deal with all discipline, right? And so the question we need to ask as, as followers of Christ is how do we respond to God's discipline? I want to read two passages um, that, that hit, this, hit this very well. First one's in Hebrews. The response, I pray that I always have. I pray that we have, one that we embrace. Hebrews chapter 12. I have no bookmark. There it is. Hebrews chapter 12. And I love this passage too because uh, it's quoting Solomon. <laughs> it says, okay, Hebrews chapter 12, starting verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, we weren't born God's child. That happens when we're born again by the Spirit. So we have not at times been disciplined. That's what that's saying. 
in which all have participated, not being, being left without discipline, but now that we are, or then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Like if we're not being disciplines, disciplined, essentially, then we're not kids. We're not his. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers. So now he gives an example here. And earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Like, I've spanked my kids. I've been spanked by my dad, okay? It renders respect and it's right. It's training. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits or heavenly father and live? For they, earthly fathers is what he's referring to there, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. I don't discipline perfectly, right? Like we do our best, but there's still error that exists there. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Now watch this, that we may share his holiness. Wow. That we may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Of course, that's what it is. But later, this is the fruit of it. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, you know, sharing in God's holiness, being corrected into living a right way before God, walking before him rightly. Peaceful fruit of righteousness to those, here's a key here, to those who have been trained by it. Trained by it is is essentially... Yes, you're crying. That hurts. Maybe you're doing the dance thing. You know, I remember that as a kid. Like, but you recognize this is for my good. You are thankful for it. You see the, the, the love that's behind it. God is treating you as, as sons. He doesn't discipline. He disciplines because he loves you. If you are not being disciplined, then chances are you're not his kid. Now look at verse, um, you don't have to turn there, but in contrast to that response, Psalm 50 Check this out. Verse 16, it says, but to the wicked, God says. So that's key there. He's speaking to the wicked, not the righteous, which would be representative of those who belong to God. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? Which is, which is remarkable, right? They're speaking Christianity in a sense. They are speaking the right words. They're speaking the right words. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? Verse 17, for you hate discipline. And you cast, a, cast my words behind you. I mean, you don't walk before me in obedience to me. You cast them. You disregard them. And, when I, and if there's discipline, you hate it. Who is he talking to? The wicked. Those who do not belong to God. So it's one of those two, when God disciplines us, when he corrects us. And now we're going to get into examples of this and markers that represent one who is solely dedicated to the Lord. Let's pick up verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before their enemy, because they have, here it is, they have sinned against you. Like, that's a discipline. (laughs) They're being defeated. And if they turn again to you, what would you call that? It's repentance. Turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. Restoration, like that reconciliation, bring them back. 
Here's another one, verse 35. When heaven is shut up, meaning like there is no rain. It's just dry. There is no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, repentance. So there's confession, there's repentance. That's what's taking place. When you afflict them, there's that discipline. And another verse, I just got to go there real quick, real close to that chapter 50 in Psalms. Listen to this one in 51. This is where David you know, he's, he's crying out to God. He's been broken by the sin of uh, adultery and murder against um, Uriah. But he says this, purge me with hyssop. Like he's confessed his sin. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear, let me hear, please God, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken. That's the affliction, right? Like I am crushed. Let the bones that you have broken, what? Rejoice. Like that is leaning into, that is, that is being thankful, recognizing the discipline that God is bringing upon your life is for your good. Let them rejoice. Thank you, God. To come back to that place where he is communing with God, where he is with God, restored. All right, let's continue. Verse 36, then here in heaven, again, the same thing, here in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people. Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Another one here, verse 37. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is. So he's like, just all-encompassing. Whatever the affliction is, whatever the, the discipline is, all of it, whatever it is, let's continue. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, if it's a corporate sin, all your people, Israel, each knowing, listen to this, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. There it is again, the focus of the heart. Like when we are crushed, if you truly are crushed, you know exactly why you are crushed in your, in your bones, why you are convicted of that sin. It's not generic. It's not ambiguous. It is specific. And so when we confess sin, we are to be specific, specific about that sin. That's what it's saying there, knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Amen, right? God knows our hearts. We cannot hide that from him. I mean, that's why he says, pour out your heart to me. Like if there is whatever the ugliness or whatever you're at inside, if you're just saying certain words that sound like how they ought to sound because that's, that's pleasant, you're not fooling God. He's looking here. Those words are, going, are not, even rep, they're not even landing on his ears. He's looking here. So that's what we pour out. That's what he's looking upon. He knows it. That you, that they may fear you all the days they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. That discipline, the learn to fear the Lord, a good fear, that reverent fear. Likewise, verse 41, this is super neat. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, 
For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner, foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, look at this, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that they have built is called by your name. I mean, that's like evangelistic. Like as God's people and his presence with us as belonging to him, there is, there is by virtue of that, one who's solely dedicated to the Lord and evangel- evangelistic just presence. Like people are, are drawn like a, a, a moth to a flame. There is an attraction to this life because they see Christ when that is happening. They see the light the true, the hope that is there, that shines through in your words, that we are salt and we are light, as Jesus says, right? I mean, Jesus, when he was walking the earth during his ministry, he wasn't telling his disciples, would you go round up some people? Like put flyers up, you know, go do all this. Like they fly, if anything, he had to like escape for a while just to kind of get some breathing room. No, I wouldn't put it that way. He just had had to get some time alone with the father to be restored. I mean, they came to him, they flocked to him. And I know we're, as Christians, we're going to be hated, right? They hated Jesus. But there's also among the people, especially among those who are being called by God, like there is an attractiveness to Christianity that is not an attractiveness that we could be fabricating or, or, or you know, conjuring up by programs or anything like that. It's just by the virtue of being in the presence of God, of belonging to God, of having his life in you. That draws people in. They see the sincerity of your heart. There's an infectiousness of there that is a good infectiousness. They want it. It is a mystery to them. It's Christ with you. And so, so we see that. A foreigner from a far country, they will come. Like that is, that is taking place. And that is a good thing. Like when they, Solomon is saying, when they pray, like hear them. Like bring them into this covenant people that they what does he say? That they may fear you as do your people. The example that we represent as God's people of fearing God, walking before God in the fear of the Lord, having that trembling and rejoicing together, that paradox, right? In Psalm 2, tremble and rejoice, like dancing and weeping. And I mean, all together because of, of the, uh, the grandeur of who our God is and the greatness of his love towards us in Christ Jesus, those always go together, a tremendous reverence and a tremendous rejoicing all in the same space. Okay, continue. Verse 44, if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you send them and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So you read in the New Testament, we stand in the defense of the gospel, right? We're defending the truth, the the, the true essence of what the gospel is, what it means, what we're saved by. There is a defense there, but it's not just a defense. We're on the offense, right? We're advancing the kingdom of heaven with the gospel. We are pushing back against darkness. We are fighting the enemy within our own sin. We need to fight that daily. We are fighting the enemy in the circle of influence we live in this world. And that's what he says here. What does he say? uh, 
against our, when we go to battle against our enemy by whatever way you shall send them. So first and foremost, God, where are you sending me to fight? You know, where in my heart do I need to fight? What lust, what temptations do I need to battle? What sin do I need to battle in the, fle- or in the spirit against to kill, to mortify the flesh? What battle in the workplace, in the family? Like we need God's help to tell us that this is where the fight needs to go. And then also maintaining it. Like we need God's help. I need your strength, your power, your presence to be able to maintain the cause to actually do to walk in the victory that I can be assured of in Christ. You've already attained for us on the cross. Like that's, that's what's being prayed there. When they pray for where and be with, maintain the cause, that's the prayer there. And one who is solely dedicated to the Lord recognizes that. God, I am on the advance. I defend when, when something comes like, no, that's wrong. That's not the gospel. I'm going to defend it. But I'm also on the offense I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and I'm going to share Christ with this person. I'm going to ask some pointed questions that are going to be tender, but a little uncomfortable because I'm getting beyond the surface. I want to get to the heart because we have eternity at stake. If this person doesn't cling to Christ and they are, they're, they're, they're on the way to hell. And we got to take that serious. We got to take it serious for ourselves, right? Battle against our own flesh. Okay, let's continue. Verse 48. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. How true that is. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive. We're just going to read this whole section. Carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet, if they turn their heart, there it is again, the focus of the heart, turn their heart in the land, to which you have been carried away captive, to which they have been carried away captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captive, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all of their mind and with all of their heart, you guys, the mind is like the, the, the fuel of the affections of the heart. What we feel, what we think drives they, they, they go so much together. Repent with all their mind and their heart in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you have given to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive. Like in the sight of their captors, grant them compassion that they may have compassion on them for they are your people. Again, belonging to God and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron, iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought out, brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. This is a really neat, a special, big chunk, but a special um, portion of this prayer because 
It sounds a bit familiar, right? If they sin against you, if there's famine in the land because they sinned against you, if the sky is shut up because they sinned against you. But everything we just went through prior to this, they were still in their land, right? They were still in their land. And in this case, their sin results in them being taken captive out of their land. What he's saying there in a sense is like, let's say this is the place of the captivity, okay? And and the place where God's name dwells is... uh, cascade locks, okay? And he's saying there, if in their mind and their, their heart, they, they're, they're repent of their, they're calling upon it, and they're just basically facing this way. They don't see the temple. They just know it's in that direction, and they're praying with all their heart and their mind that God would have compassion on them and restore them. And what this is saying, church, is you are never too far removed to be restored. You are never too far gone to be brought back in to fellowship with God. There is no greatest sin that says, not, not anymore. No, this is it. No, you're no more. You cannot come back. God is saying here, if in their heart, their mind, there is repentance, they are afflicted, they are like, please, God, forgive me. You are never too far gone. What a sweet promise. What a sweet picture we have there. Let's continue. Verse 54. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plead to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. That's a bit confusing. He said he arose? Let's back up a little bit. Verse 22, as he begins this prayer, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the people or excuse me, in presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. What happens here? Verse 54, now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plead to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, which he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. Now I'm, I'm standing here. I've been standing here for, I don't know how long, but a while. And if I was doing this the whole time, guess what's going to be tired? My arms, not my legs. Do you see what's being pictured here? Solomon is, is just spending, he's, it's the weight of the glory of God. Like he is spending time in prayer. His, he is worshiping God. He is praying to the Lord before this people. And I almost wonder like, was he unaware that this was happening? <laughs> you know, he's just praying and like all of a sudden, like when he's done, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm down. How'd that happen, right? I don't know. I don't know, but but I love it. Like when we are with God, like that is the right, that is the right response. And a response that's not fabricated. Oh, okay, let me get down. Not that you can't do that, but, but just within your heart, like there is, this, there is this humbling, there is this sense of the presence of God that bears a weight of the glory of God upon you that, that brings you to a low state of, of wonder and awe and makes rightly seeing God in the grandeur and the splendor that he is, how big he is. And I love how that shows that there. It's so beautiful. Let's continue. And he stood and he blessed and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. 
the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Isn't that cool? Like, again, our heart, the focus, attention on the heart. God, incline my heart. We read in the Psalms, incline my heart to fear your name. Like a a life solely dedicated to the Lord recognizes, God, I need your help to fear you. I need your help to love you. I need your help to follow you. Help me, help me as I look to your word, as I plea this prayer to you. Bring that out. Like give me an appetite for your word. Give me an appetite to to talk with you, to be with you. Like, Like please, like incline my heart. Initiate that. I'm crying out for it. I'm asking for it. I want to work with you in it. But I recognize you are the source. Unless you begin it, it's not going to happen. So please, and there is a, the heart behind that is so fitting because it's grace. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it. But God is one who delights to bless, who delights to draw his children to him. Incline our hearts to him, to walk in his ways, to live that obedient life, glad obedience from the heart. Let's continue. Verse 59. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There's that evangelistic, there's that advancement of God's kingdom that all may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. Verse 61, let your heart therefore be holy, true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. That verse 61, I believe that it does not answer those opening questions in summary, those opening questions about to have a life solely dedicated to the Lord. Like, what does that, what does it mean to have such a life? What does that look like? To have a life solely dedicated to the Lord is one whose heart is wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping commandments. And church, all four categories, or excuse me, all, yeah, all four categories of markers present can come under. They can come under the, 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 the banner of the heart, right? They can all come under the banner of the heart, the innermost part of a person that bears the essence of who they truly are, of who they truly are in your heart, knowing and delighting that you belong to God, Like there is no greater comfort in knowing that I am his. That I rejoice when I'm spanked as much as it is displeasing, as it says, right? But I want to be trained by it. In your heart, knowing and delighting in that, that you are his child, his possession. In your heart, desiring nothing more than to be in constant fellowship with him. So when Paul prays, pray without ceasing, He's, he's not saying literally like you walk around and you're just, you're just constantly talking and praying. That's just ever living in the presence of God, that he is always with you. 
And so that's why when you, when you sin, when that, when that fellowship is severed for a time because of, because of sin, you are sick and you, you flee to him to be, to be restored. You confess that sin. So you're brought back into that presence, that closeness, that communion with God to be near him in his presence. In your heart, bearing the posture of humility and reverence, as we've seen here through this whole prayer, right? I mean, just, I'll just give you that, again, that example, like starting here and all of a sudden you're just, you just feel that the sweetness of being just, I'm, I am less than nothing and you love me. And you love me. Oh, wow. In your heart, bearing that posture of humility and reverence before an almighty God and having a sincerity of heart that people are drawn to you because they see they just see that sincerity that there is a light, there is salt in your speech and they discover the source to be the presence of Christ in you. Like that is a life who is solely dedicated to the Lord that that, is a, that, is a, that takes place. A heart that is truly, that is wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. And this is, this is where the gospel rescues us, rescues us, does it not? This is where it rescues us. For, for our, a heart, a heart wholly true to the Lord, is intimately aware firsthand that they stumble, that they fall, that we ultimately fail to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments all the time. Like you were the first to say, <coughs> excuse me, guilty. Like just, yeah. I don't deserve, I'm just, that, that heart, holy, true to the Lord, recognizes that. They're quick to admit that. Because as Solomon stated, <coughs> excuse me, there is, there is no one who does not sin. No one who does not sin. Just like in Solomon's prayer, in which we clearly see confession, repentance, and forgiveness granted when people turn in their heart to the place God called by his name. Like to be restored. That, 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 we've said it here many times amongst pillar. You know, I think it's uh, Martin Luther's quote. The life of a Christian is a life that practices repentance. A heart holy true to the Lord sees that there's sin and are specific in confessing that to be restored, to be renewed. And in the and we saw how they were doing that in Solomon's prayer to that place uh, called by God's name. But we now, we now come to him who tabernacled among us, right? He who put upon flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. That's what that means. God with us, Christ Jesus, our King. Not, not to a temple made with human hands, as glorious as that was, where the presence of the glory of God dwelt, like made of the human hands, that cloud was there, they couldn't stand. Though the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God, how much less a house Solomon built, but there was a presence of God there. But we, we here and now, and all of God's children can come to him who the Bible says, listen to this, saints. Bible says in Colossians 2.9, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. God, Emmanuel, who put upon flesh, Christ Jesus, our King. We come to him. 
We come to Jesus and we call upon his name, confess our sins to him who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then from there, as we've already spoken, from there with his help, we repent. We turn away from sin and turn towards a life of glad obedience from where? From the heart. Glad obedience from the heart to him. That's the life. Such a life that represents one solely dedicated to the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? And Father, uh, I'll begin where Solomon began in his prayer. Just acknowledging there is no God like you. You are God alone. No one compares to you. No one in heaven above or in earth beneath. And we are humbled. We see so clearly how undeserving we are that we have been purchased, that you sought us out, that you called us into your, into your family. You rescued us. You loved us first. We love you because you first loved us, as it says so in your word. And God, we can't get enough of you. We want more of you. We are content and rejoice and where we are at presently, wherever that is. But I pray for each and every one of us, God, that there is a stirring in our heart. For that's what you look upon. That's what matters. Nothing on the surface. If there's anything on the surface, made only if it's representative of the expressions, the manifestation of the heart in our words and our deeds and in everything. But it's the heart, God. We want that heart before you that is, that is either, uh, well, that is wholly true. That is wholly true before you. And glad obedience and when, and when we sin, our just heart sick and broken. We want your heart, ultimately, God, your desires in our heart. May we be such a people. May we be such a people who, who do practice that repentance, that brokenness, crying out to you, pleading, not presuming upon, not bringing any sort of demands or murmuring, but, but just pleading, begging, please, God, have mercy, restore me. And even that, it just has a beautiful paradox because there's a plea, you know, we're pleading there, we're not presuming upon it, but yet there's also a confidence in there, God, because we know your character. We look to Christ. When we were your enemies, you came and you saved us. You died for us before we were reconciled. And now that we are reconciled, how much more are you for us? Are you, are you going to hear our prayer and rescue us? And so I just, I love that, God, about you. That in reverence, we come to you, not presuming. We come to you pleading, but we come to you in a grace in which we stand in Christ Jesus. We come to you in a confidence that you do hear us because of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we are united in, whom we are in his life by faith. So Father, we come, may we always come to you in that name. May we always come to you in such a posture. May we always uh, just delight and the fact that we are your possession and long forever to be in your presence. And may, may there, there be felt that, that, that 
that weight of the glory of God in our life, just bringing about a humility expressed in our, in our goings and how we order our day. May we have a, a sense that we are, like, there's this, this that, you are, that we are a project of yours or we are your workmanship, that you are, there's something outside of us that is working in us. May we see that. May we embrace that. Even though there's wrestling, as we saw Jacob wrestling with God, may we just wrestle through that, recognizing that there is a resistance, there is an inner, you know, that the old man, the old nature is still there, that we got to put to death by the Spirit, that we are wrestling, that we are fighting, that we are working with you, striving after the holiness and the fear of God, that we are yielding to your training, loving rod of discipline. And above all, that we feel your embrace, that no matter that there is no sin committed, that we are too far removed from you. Thank you for that passage, that we can always be returned. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can be returned and restored and be embraced, even as we read that, 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 um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. But the the prodigal son uh, coming back, to his father and being embraced, you running to him, weeping, falling on him. That's you, Father. That represents your love for us, how quickly you are ready to forgive. God, how glorious you are, how wonderful you are. Thank you for that. And God, help us be a people from from the heart that there is indeed uh, a defense of the gospel that we stand on, that we do it with respect and gentleness as your word instructs us to when we are defending truth, that we never carry about an, an attitude of arrogance or haughtiness or anything of that nature, but just a, just a gentle, reverent respect, a holy conduct. But that we're also bold as you would send us, as you would maintain our cause, that you would guide us and strengthen us, give the strength and the grace to advance, to be on the offense, to move forward, to to seek out your will and how you would call each individual and us as a church to advance the gospel, to, to fight against the evil in our land, in our day. God, please hear this prayer, hear this plea, Guide us and lead us. And Father, lastly, thank you for your faithfulness, your steadfast love. You're full of mercy and grace and you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how you describe who you are and it is so true. And so we, we rest in that, we lean into that, Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your word. I pray now, Holy Spirit, that only that which you would have remain in the ears, in the mind, and to work into the heart to bring about fruit for you, fruit that is resulting in in a great good for us and being changed more into your likeness, to the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, and brings glory to your name. Holy Spirit, be doing a work in your power in each and every soul present, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.